Welcome to Sal on Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Sal on Air is a podcast of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Catherine Boo, Zadie Smith, Valeria Luiselli, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. In this episode, we hear from one of the preeminent authors of the 20th century, Philip Roth, who joined us in October 1992 for a reading from his National Book Award-winning memoir, Patrimony, A True Story. Written with great intimacy, at the height of his literary powers, Patrimony is Roth's elegy to his father, who he accompanies, full of love and dread, through each stage of terminal brain cancer. As he does so, Roth wrestles with a stubborn, survivalist drive that distinguished his father's engagement with life and his own anxieties around remembering the man with precision. Quote, You mustn't forget anything. That's the inscription on my father's coat of arms, Roth writes. To be alive to him is to be made of memory. At the conclusion of Roth's reading, he takes questions from the audience. Roth passed away in May 2018 at the age of 85 after a long and vital career of investigating what it meant for him to be an American, a Jew, a writer, and a man, through many different masks. He once said, Updike and Bellow hold their flashlights out into the world, reveal the world as it is now. I dig a hole and shine my flashlight into the hole. Here's Philip Roth on patrimony. Thank you very much. Uh, I have some tape here with which to tape down my, my hot remarks, so you bear with me while I, while I do that. Well, now good evening. Uh, I'm going to read for about an hour this evening about a retired insurance manager who died of a brain tumor in October 1989, 88 years after he was born to immigrant parents in a slum neighborhood in Newark, New Jersey. This man was my father. In 1880, Newark was a prospering manufacturing city of about 100,000 people. Americans predominantly of English-speaking stock, as well as a sizable minority of German ancestry. Between 1880 and the start of the First World War in 1914. Two and a half times that number of foreigners, a quarter of a million immigrants, settled in Newark. Close to a fifth of them were Jews from Eastern Europe, about 40,000. The rest were, in roughly equal parts, Italians, Irish, Germans, and Slavs. Two of these 40,000 Jews were my paternal grandparents, Bertha and Sender Roth. They came to America in the 1890s from a small town in Polish Galicia, not far from the provincial capital then called Lemberg. Today, Lemberg, that eastern outpost of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, is the city of Lviv in Ukraine, only recently Lvov in the Soviet Union. 
The Sender Roths, both about 30, arrived in Newark just about 100 years ago with three small boys and no money, not a cent. The language they spoke was Yiddish. My grandfather had been trained as a child to be a rabbi, and so he knew Hebrew as well. He got a job in a hat factory. The Roth's firstborn American child was my father, Herman, who, as I've mentioned, lived from 1901 to 1989. Like three-quarters of the children of Newark's enormous new immigrant population, three-quarters of them, my father did not attend school beyond the eighth grade. He left 13th Avenue School at the then-legal school-leaving age of 14 to work in the hat factory beside my grandfather. In 1927, Herman Roth met and married Bess Finkel, the American-born daughter of a marginally more fortunate immigrant family than his own, very marginally, and a recent graduate of an Elizabeth, New Jersey high school. The young couple borrowed money to open a small family shoe store. It went bankrupt only a few years later, around the time my older brother was born in Newark, and the stock market crashed. Next came the Great American Depression, the repeal of Prohibition, the election of Franklin Roosevelt for his first term, and the triumph in Germany of the Nazis and their leader, Adolf Hitler. That's when I was born in Newark and when my father went to work as an agent for the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. For the Metropolitan, he canvassed the Newark streets house by house, flat by flat, basement by basement, 60 and 70 hours a week, sometimes longer, trying first to sell working people life insurance, and then what was perhaps still more difficult, trying to collect the premiums from them so that the policies wouldn't lapse and he wouldn't lose his commission. His income derived mainly from commissions, and the commissions were not princely. At about the time I matriculated at college in 1950, a series of promotions by the Metropolitan culminated in my father's appointment as a district manager of one of Metropolitan's smaller New Jersey offices, one with a disastrous sales record and a hapless, demoralized staff, including not a few heavy drinkers. But my father himself was a hard worker, a no-nonsense moralist, and a driving boss. And by the time he retired in his early 60s, he was managing one of Metropolitan Life's largest, most productive offices in the Northeast. By anybody's measure, he'd come a long way from the eighth grade classroom of 13th Avenue School. Neither Marco Polo nor Buzz Aldrin could have been any more astonished by the magnitude of their journeys than was my father when in his retirement he looked back on where he'd begun and where he'd wound up. In 1987, five years ago, while my widowed father was vacationing in Florida with his companion, Lillian Beloff, he went to bed one night, apparently in excellent health, and woke up the next morning to find the right side of his face was completely paralyzed. The lower lid of that eye bagged downward, revealing the lid's inner lining. The cheek on that side had gone slack and lifeless, as though the bone beneath had been filleted. And his lips were no longer straight, but drawn down diagonally across his face. Thickening his speech and making eating a messy bite-by-bite -bite effort laden with frustration and embarrassment. 
Not until he got back to New Jersey early in the spring was the paralysis properly diagnosed. An MRI test revealed that it was caused by a massive brain tumor. The doctor called to give me the test results, and I drove over to New Jersey from New York, where I was living temporarily in a Manhattan hotel while my wife was working in London, to tell my father what the doctor had said. All this by way of introduction. What follows is taken from my most recent book, Patrimony. The book's subtitle is A True Story. The book's subject is My Father's Dying and Death Reported Exactly As I Saw It Happen. The chapter I'll read from, chapter three, is called Will I Be a Zombie? So, having arrived at his apartment to tell him about the tumor, I'd gone into the toilet where, while eyeing my grandfather's old shaving mug on a shelf beside the medicine chest, I'd rehearsed my lines for the 50th time. Then I'd come back out into the living room and looking at him, looked at him slumped down in a corner of the sofa, waiting for the verdict. Lil waited in the other corner of the sofa. She said to me, Philip, do you want me to go? Of course not. Herman, she said to him, do you want me to stay? But he didn't even hear her. And from then on, Lil was so silent, she might as well not have been there. Well, he said slowly in a very gloomy voice, what's the sad news? I sat in the chair across from him, my heart pounding as though I were the one about to be told something terrible. You have a serious problem, I began, but it can be dealt with. You have a tumor in your head. But Dr. Meyerson says that given the location, the chances are 95% that it's benign. I had intended, like Meyerson, to be candid and describe it as large, but I couldn't. That there was a tumor seemed enough for him to take in. Not that he had registered any shock as yet. He sat there emotionless, waiting for me to go on. It's pressing on the facial nerve, and that's what's caused the paralysis. Myerson had told me that it was wrapped around the facial nerve, but I couldn't say that either. It's a tumor, I said, but it's not malignant and it's operable. He can operate if we want him to. Dr. Myerson wants to speak to you about an operation, Dad. I think it's a good idea to go back and talk to him now that we know what's up. I think that all of us should sit down together in his office and see if an operation is feasible. Finally, it's going to be your decision. I then added feebly, Myerson says that it's a routine operation. Myerson had indeed used that phrase at the close of our conversation the day before, and I had thought, sure it is, routine for you. Will my face get better if he operates? No, there just won't be any more deterioration. So this is the way I'm going to be. I'm afraid so. Two minutes and I had learned to talk like a surgeon. I see, he said. And then he fell silent and then he was lost. Alone and lost and I wouldn't have been surprised if right then he had died. His eyes were looking out to nowhere 
onto nothing like someone who has just been fatally shot. He was gone like that for about a minute. Then, having absorbed the blow, he was back in the midst of the struggle, estimating the scale of his loss. And my hearing? What well, the tumor is damaged can't be retrieved. The operation, as I understand it, will prevent anything further from happening. Unless the operation were itself to make something further happen, but I didn't go into that. I would let Myerson apprise him of the risks, as well as of the size of the tumor, and the encasement of the facial nerve. Will it grow back, he asked. I don't know. I wouldn't think so, but you'll have to ask the doctor. Look, we'll make up a list of questions. You'll write them down, you'll take them with you, and then you can ask the doctor everything you want to know. Will I be a zombie? I don't think Myerson would propose this operation if he thought that could possibly be the outcome. But could it not be? Of the 15% who Myerson allowed were worse off after the surgery, weren't they zombies or close enough to what my father meant by a zombie? And what about the 15% who didn't survive the operation at all? Where is it, he asked. In front of the brainstem, that's at the base of the skull. The doctor will show you where exactly. I want you to write down all your questions so you can go over everything with him on Monday. I've made an appointment for us to see him and to talk this thing through with him on Monday. Of all things, he smiled. A wry half-smile, really, that worldly-wise, heartbroken smile that says, but of course. He put his hand to the base of his skull and feeling nothing unusual there, smiled again. Well, Everybody leaves this earth in a different way. And I replied, everybody lives on it in a different way. Everybody's battle is different, and the battle never ends. It's going to be an ordeal. But if the surgery seems to all of us the right way to proceed, then two months from now, we're going to be sitting right here, talking, and you're not going to have that thing inside you pressing on those nerves. It was wretched being unable to believe my own words, but I did not know what else to say. I thought, two months from now, he'll be in a convalescent home, barely able to lift a spoon to feed himself his cereal. Two months from now, he'll be a zombie, in a bed somewhere, fed intravenously, whom I sit helplessly beside just the way he once sat with his dying father. Two months from now, He'll be in the cemetery with my mother. In the meantime, he had gone off to the bathroom. When he came out, he was talking about his appendectomy in 1944, when against heavy odds, he had survived a dreadful bout with peritonitis. He was remembering how I had nearly died of a burst appendix of peritonitis in 1968. Then he was back in 1942, recalling my hernia operation at age nine, how he had taken me to see the family doctor after I had been in distress on a Sunday drive with the family. It was the second time in a month we had been to the doctor about my discomfort. I told the doctor, I insisted, this boy is not a complainer, there must be something wrong. They told us there was nothing wrong. I insisted and insisted and eventually they found out I was right. 
I told Dr. Ira he should rest in peace. You, you remember our Dr. Ira Flax? Of course I do, I said. I, I was nuts about it. And my brother Charlie, he said, dying in my arms. Such a handsome man. All that energy. Four children, Philip, and he died in my arms, my older brother I worshipped. And my Milton, my brother Milton. Remember Milton? No, I said Milton died the year before I was born. That's how I got my middle name. Milton, he said, 19 years old, a brilliant student, the shining light of the family. His senior year at Newark College of Engineering, on and on, remembering the illnesses, the operations, the fevers, the transfusions, the recoveries, the comas, the vigils, the deaths, the burials. His mind, in its habitual way, working to detach him from the agonizing isolation of a man at the edge of oblivion and to connect his brain tumor to a larger history. To place his suffering in a context where he was no longer someone alone with an affliction peculiarly and horribly his own, but a member of a clan whose trials he knew and accepted and had no choice but to share. In this way did he manage to domesticate his terror and eat his lunch. And that night, as he reported to me the next morning on the telephone, to get six continuous hours of sleep before waking in a sweat at 5 a.m. I was not so lucky. I couldn't find any context to diminish my forebodings. The thought of his undergoing an operation as awful as that at the age of 86 was unbearable. And if he even made it successfully through the surgery, the prospect of the recovery, and if something should go wrong during the surgery, I couldn't sleep for six continuous minutes. Zombie, a word I don't suppose I'd heard since his children, my brother and I used to go to see horror movies at the Rex Theater in Irvington. Zombie kept conjuring up the most hideous medical scenarios. The next morning, I phoned to ask if he wanted to go for a ride. No, he didn't want to go for a ride. But it was a beautiful spring day. We could drive up to the Orange Mountains. We could go to Grunnings for lunch. Oh, no. He was better off at home. I said I'd come over and we could take a walk. He didn't want to go for a walk. I said I'd buy some locks and bagels and drive over and have lunch with him and Lil at the apartment. Was Lil around? She was upstairs. I'll tell her to come down and we'll have lunch together. It wasn't necessary. Maybe not for you, I thought, but it is for me. And so I went out and bought locks, bagels, and cream cheese in a 6th Avenue deli and then got the car and drove over to Jersey. When I got there, he was sitting, as I had imagined, alone on the sofa, pitifully dejected looking. Shades were drawn, the radio music wasn't on, and it appeared as though he hadn't even bothered to borrow yesterday's newspaper from one of his spendthrift neighbors. As I began to unpack the food I brought, he told me he wasn't hungry. When I suggested that instead of eating right away, we go out and take a walk, he, he made a noise to indicate that he didn't want to. Where's Lil, I asked, turning on a lamp at about 11 in the morning. Upstairs. Don't you want to see her? 
He shrugged. He didn't care either way. I hoped they hadn't argued. Though I wouldn't have put it past him, even at the time of his greatest need to go to work, first thing, on one or more of those many failings of hers that it had become his mission to eradicate. She ate too much and was overweight. She was cheap and wouldn't part with a dime. She talked for hours on the phone with a sister of hers he couldn't stand. She was always running somewhere, to this flea market to buy crap, to that flea market to buy crap. She took stupid risks with money he told her to stick into CDs. She did not drive a car to his satisfaction. The list was long, maybe even endless. Though, of course, at the beginning of their affair, it had been for him as it is for all of us. She had been perfect then. Even her flaws were beautiful. Yes, back then, her physical proportions were characterized in rather more flattering terms than he would have used to describe them now. She's like that painter, he told me. You, you know who I mean? I hadn't met Lil as yet, but I took a guess. Rubens? <laughs> that, that's the one, he said. Well, I said, Zoftik is nice, too. Philip, he said shyly, I'm doing things I haven't done since I was a boy. We should all be so lucky, I told him. Lil had moved into my father's Elizabeth apartment building shortly after the death of her husband and a year after the death of my mother, and lived there with one of her two stepsons, Kenny, whose financial acumen didn't entirely meet my father's standards. Not only didn't my father approve of how Kenny went about his business, but he didn't like the way her boss ran the auto supply house where she worked as a bookkeeper either. And when he told Lil as much, instead of retorting that he didn't know what he was talking about or that she didn't need his opinion. She sat and she politely listened and courteously didn't talk back. And as I see it, this forbearance may perhaps have had more to do with what seduced him than did the Rubenesque amplitude that he soon came to see as a result of her continuing to eat much too much despite his relentless upbraiding of her. Meal by meal. Course by course. Helping by helping. <laughs> Eating was her only revenge, and like the tumor, it was something he could not stop, no matter how he railed against it. You see, he could never understand that a capacity for renunciation, an iron self-discipline like his own, was extraordinary and not an endowment shared by all. He figured if a man with all his handicaps and limitations had it in him, then anybody did. All that was required was willpower, as if willpower grew on trees. His unswerving dutifulness toward those for whom he was responsible seemed to compel him to respond to what he perceived as their failings as viscerally as he did to what he took, and not necessarily mistakenly, to be their needs. And because his was a peremptory personality, and because 
buried deep inside him was an unalloyed nugget of prehistoric ignorance as well. He had no idea just how unproductive, how maddening, even at times how cruel his admonishing could be. He would have told you that you can lead a horse to water and you can make him drink. You just hock him and hock him and hock him until he comes to his senses and does it. Hock, a Yiddishism that in this context means to badger, to bludgeon, to hammer with warnings and edicts and pleas. In short, to drill a hole in somebody's head with words. You and Lil have a fight, I asked, when I walked in and saw him by himself. She's never around anyway, so what difference does it make? She runs here, she runs there. When she was sick, I took care of her. I waited on her hand and foot. The hell with her, let her go, I'm fine. I don't need anyone. It's not my business to butt in, I said, but is this really a good time to start an argument? I don't argue with anybody, he told me. I never argue. If I tell her something, I only tell it to her for her own good. If she doesn't want to listen, the hell with her. <laughs> Look, put on a sweater and put on your walking shoes and I'm going to phone Lil. And if she wants to come along, we're all going out for a walk. It's a beautiful day and you can't sit around inside like this. I'm fine inside. I then spoke four words to him. Four words that I'd never uttered to him before in my life. Do as I say, I told him. Put on a sweater and your walking shoes. And they worked, those four words. I am 55, he is almost 87, and the year is 1988. Do as I say, I tell him. And he does it. The end of one era, the dawn of another. While he went to the closet and put on a bright red sweater and his white Adidas, I phoned Lil and asked if she'd like to take a walk with us. Your father's going for a walk, she said, really? He is, come, join us. I suggest we go out for a walk and it'll do him good and he jumps down my throat. I don't mean to criticize, but that's the truth, Philip. You're the only one he listens to. I laughed, and that may not last too long either. I'll be right down, she said. The three of us walked together to the drugstore three blocks away, past the old apartment buildings and the new condominiums that were going up where the last of Elizabeth's opulent Victorian houses had once stood. Lil held him by one arm and I by the other, since walking had become very uncertain for him because of his poor vision. Only a few months earlier, he'd been patiently waiting for the cataract in his good eye to ripen so that it could be removed. Now, instead of looking forward to the minor surgery, that would restore his vision, and with it, he confidently assumed his robust independence. He was contemplating an operation on his head that could kill him. As we walked, he began to reminisce in a very rambling way. My memory, it's no good anymore, he explained. But that wasn't exactly true. The sequence was often random and the focus sometimes blurry, but then the logic of his recollections could always be a little elusive, even at the best times. He certainly had no difficulty remembering the names of people dead now 20, 30, and 40 years, 
or where they had lived, to whom they were related, and what they had said to him or he to them on occasions not necessarily that remarkable. Through my father's mother's line, we had belonged to a vast family network that had eventually organized into a family association in 1939 at the outbreak of the European War. While I was growing up, the association consisted of some 80 families in and around Newark and some 70 families in and around Boston. There was an annual convention and an annual summer outing family newspaper that was printed quarterly, a family song, a family seal, family stationery. A current roster of names and addresses of every family member was sent out to everyone each year. A happy day fund looked after the ill and the convalescing, and an education fund assisted children of the family with their college tuition. In 1943, Herman Roth had become the fifth family member and the second of his brothers to be elected president. His first vice president had been Harold Chabin of Roxbury, Massachusetts. Harold Chabin was the son of Max Chabin and Ida Flashner. Harold's uncle was Uncle Sam Flashner, the family pioneer in America. His second vice president was Herman Goldstein, who lived in New York. Goldstein was a hatter, loved to play cards with Leibowitz, had married Celia. All this was recounted to Lil and me as we began our walk down North Broad Street. Our family association, he said, back in those years, was one of the largest and strongest associations of its kind in the United States. It was the very tone in which he used to tell me as a boy that Metropolitan Life, his employer, was the largest financial institution in the world. We may have been ordinary people, but our affiliations were not without grandeur. Out of nowhere, he said, when my father sold the house on Rutgers Street, he sold it to an Italian family. Did he? How much did he get? What year was that? I was born 1901. They moved to Rutgers Street in 1902. We lived there 14 years, so it must have been sold in 1916. $6,000, that's what he got for it. The Italian paid him in nickels, dimes, and quarters. It took a week to count it. Only a week. I would think you'd, I'd think you'd still be counting. My father, he said, as we approached the drugstore to which my mother had taken the last long walk of her life eight years earlier, my father had to beat my older brother Ed to prevent him from marrying a worldly woman. Had to beat him. My uncle Ed had been a bruiser with a short fuse who used to take me to football games when I was a child. His big hands and his broken nose and his rough argumentative nature would thrill me for an hour or two, and I loved him. But I was always glad at the end of a day's outing that he was my cousin Florence's father. You never told me that, I said. Grandpa beat him? Had to. Saved him. Saved him from that woman. How old was Ed then? 23? He first told me that story when I was 16 in my last year of high school. I don't remember why he told it, but it was at dinner near the end of the meal, and I had jumped up from the table in a rage and then bolted from the room when I'd heard him conclude, they don't have that kind of discipline anymore. 
My mother had come into my bedroom to try to get me to go back to eat my dessert. She had begged me to forgive him for whatever he had said that had offended me so. Please, dear, do it for me. But I had been adamant and refused to return to spoon down jello across the table from somebody who considered beating the love for a woman out of a 23-year-old man, even one as pig-headed as my uncle Ed, a praiseworthy form of discipline. No doubt he had forgotten that incident, and so actually had I. Until the moment 39 years later when for some obscure reason he had chosen to tell this story to me again. But there was no rage now against the storyteller. It was I, in fact, who now said to him, philosophically, well, they don't have that kind of discipline anymore. We were walking back now the way we'd come. He was silent for a while. Then, as though having glimpsed the solution to some intractable problem after a long and arduous effort, he began to say, yes, yes. Yes what, I asked. I've been alive a long time. You're the insurance man, you know the statistics, I said. On the actuarial charts, you have achieved a great age. Where is the tumor, he asked for the second time in two days, in front of the brain stem at the base of the skull. Have you seen the pictures? I didn't want him to think that too much had been going on without his knowledge, and so I lied. I couldn't read him if I had, I said. Look, it's operable. Remember that. But that was what he couldn't forget and dreaded most. If we all decide that's the course to follow, then he'll go in and get it out, and after a brief convalescence, you'll be yourself again. It would be nice to have a few more years, he said. You'll get them, I said. I drove over again on Sunday morning, and he had a set of sherry glasses ready for me to take away, each glass individually wrapped in a page of the previous week's Sunday Star Ledger, and all of them wedged bulkily together in a shoebox. He never used them, he said, he didn't need them, and he wanted Claire and me to enjoy them in the country. Ever since my mother's death, each time he came to stay with us in Connecticut, he had something with him, in a paper bag or a shopping bag, or in the little plaid valise that he carried alongside him during a three-hour car ride with a local driver we sent down to Elizabeth together. Unlike the sherry glasses, it was usually a present for him and my mother from me, or from Claire and me, that now, years later, he was returning, as though what they had been given had only been on loan, <laughs> or left there in storage. Here are those napkins. Or, here are the placemats. Or, here are the steak knives. Or, here's the flower vase. Or, here are the coffee mugs. And in the beginning, when I resisted, explaining to him, but they're yours, they were gifts, he would reply with no idea that there might be a grain of insult lurking in all this unburdening. What the hell do I need him for? 
Look at this clock, a beautiful clock that somebody gave us. Must have cost a fortune. What good is it to me? The clock had cost about $200 in Hungary in 1973. I had given it to my mother. A little porcelain clock with a floral design of the kind she liked that I bought for her in an antique shop in Budapest on the way home one spring from visiting friends in Prague. But I took it back silently. Little by little, I took everything back. Struck each time by how inconsequential to him was the sentimental value, even the material value, of things intended to betoken the love of those he most cherished. Strange, I would think, to find that particular blank spot and a man on whom the claims of family were so emotionally tyrannical. Or maybe not strange at all. How could mere keepsakes encapsulate for him the overpowering force of blood bonds? Item by item, I took it all back like a well-trained refund clerk in a first-rate department store. But wondering if Perhaps what he was thinking while he wrapped these gifts in old newspaper and stuffed them in cartons of every description was that this way we wouldn't have too many of his possessions to bother about after his funeral. He could be a pitiless realist, but I wasn't his offspring for nothing, and I could be pretty realistic too. This time, instead of silently accepting the goods being returned, I reminded him that I was still a transient in a New York hotel, didn't know when I'd next be home in Connecticut and would just as soon have him hold on to the glasses. Take them, he insisted. I want to get rid of them. Dad, I said, setting the shoebox on the brake front where I assumed the glasses had been stored all these years, these glasses are the least of our worries. But rushing around the apartment looking for the next thing to get rid of, finding the glasses, packing them in newspaper, finding the shoebox, for a moment this had given the day a purpose. It provided some little release for all that was brutally thwarted. Now there was nothing for him but to be frightened again. I was sorry suddenly for not having let him have his way and just taken the damn things back to the hotel. But I was getting frazzled, too. I'd been like that all my life, he said, dropping unhappily onto his spot on the sofa. Like what? Impulsive. I was unused to hearing this kind of self-criticism from him, and I wondered if it was such a wonderful development. At the age of 86, with a massive tumor in his head, better to continue wearing at either side of his bridle those blinders that had kept him pulling his load straight ahead all his life. I wouldn't worry about it, I said. It isn't as if you're only impulsive. You can be cautious and prudent, too. You oscillate, people do. But he was being gnawed at by something and wouldn't be consoled. What are you thinking? I asked. I gave my tefillin away. I got rid of my tefillin. Why? They were sitting in the drawer. Tefillin are the two small leather boxes containing brief biblical extracts that an Orthodox Jew fastens to himself by narrow thongs during his weekday morning prayers. One box strapped to the forehead, the other to the left arm. 
Back when my father was an overworked insurance man, being a Jew for him hadn't had much to do with formal worship. And like most of the first-generation American fathers in our neighborhood, he visited the nearby synagogue only on the high holidays and when it was necessary as a mourner. Since his retirement, however, and particularly in the last decade of my mother's life, they'd begun to attend services together mostly every Friday night. And though he still didn't go so far as to put on tefillin in the morning, his Judaism was more pointedly focused on the synagogue and the service and the rabbi than it had been at any time since his childhood. The temple was a hundred or so yards down the road on a little side street off North Broad in an old house that was rented by the small congregation of elderly local people who were barely able to meet the upkeep costs. According to my father, a yeshiva student came over from New York to lead their services on the weekend. A 23-year-old, whom my father called Rabbi most respectfully, and spoke of as something of a sage. However humble their manifestations, these yearnings for a formalized religion in his old age were inspired by something far from hypocrisy or conventional decorum. In fact, the consolation that he seemed to derive from going to synagogue regularly, the sense of unity it bestowed in his long life, and the communion with his own mother and father that he told me he felt there, made his getting rid, as he put it, of the tefillin one of the more enigmatic instances of his lifelong habit of relinquishing, rather than saving, the treasured objects of the past. Given the link of sentiment that Jewish belief now seemed to furnish between the isolation of old age and the striving populist life that was all but gone, I could have imagined him, instead of parting with his tefillin, rediscovering in the mere contemplation of them something of their ancient fetishistic power. But my imagining this old man meditated tefillin was so much with tefillin too, I asked him. Who? Nobody. You threw them out in the trash? No, no, of course I didn't. Gave them to the synagogue? I didn't know what you did do with tefillin when you no longer wanted or needed them. But surely I thought there would be a religious policy for discarding them overseen by the synagogue. You know the why, he said to me? Sure. Three, four mornings a week when I could still drive over there, I'd swim, I'd kibitz, I'd watch the card game. And? Well... That's where I went. Why? Go on. I took the tefillin in a paper bag. The locker room was empty. I left. <laughs> in one of the lockers. The halting way he revealed the details. The bafflement he himself seemed to feel, looking back now on the original plot he'd devised for their disposal, <laughs> prompted me to wait a little before asking anything further. I'm curious, I finally said. How come you didn't go to the rabbi? Ask him to take them off your hands. He shrugged, and I realized that he hadn't wanted the rabbi to know what he was up to for fear of what the 23-year-old whom he so respected would think of a Jew who was ditching his tefillin. <laughs> or was I wrong about that too? 
Maybe he'd never even thought of the rabbi as perhaps the shrug was meant to indicate. Maybe it was just revealed to him in a flash the knowledge that in that secret place where Jewish men stood unashamedly naked before one another, he could lay his tefillin to rest without worry. The understanding that where his tefillin would come to no harm, where they would not be profaned or desecrated, where they might even be re-sanctified, was in the midst of those familiar Jewish bellies and balls. Perhaps what the act signified was not his shame before the young rabbi in training, but a declaration that the men's locker room at the local YMHA was closer to the core of the Judaism he lived by than the rabbi's study at the synagogue. That nothing would have been more artificial than going with the tefillin to the rabbi, even if the rabbi had been a hundred with a beard down to the ground. Yes, the locker room of the war, where they undressed, they schwitzed, they stank. Whereas men among men, familiar with every nook and cranny of their worn down, old, ill-shapen bodies, they kibitzed, told their dirty jokes, and where once upon a time they'd made their deals, that was their temple and where they remained Jews. I didn't ask why he hadn't turned them over to me. I didn't ask why, instead of giving back to me all those napkins and tablecloths and placemats, he hadn't given me the tefillin instead. I wouldn't have prayed with them but I might well have cherished them, especially after his death. But how was he to know that? He probably thought I would have scoffed at the very idea of his handing on his tefillin to me. And 40 years earlier, he would have been right. I didn't ask because I realized that to do so was truly to place the two of us back inside that corny scenario I couldn't seem to cut myself loose from. Somewhat improbably, where his tefillin were concerned. It was I whose imagination kept running to the predictably maudlin, while his had the integrity of a genuinely anomalous talent, compelled by the elemental feeling that can lend ritualistic intensity to even the goofiest act. Well, I said, when it was clear that he had no more to tell me, one of your pals there must have got a big surprise when he came up from the pool. He must have thought a miracle had happened. There he'd left his shower clogs in the bottom of his locker. And lo and behold, they've been turned into tefillin. <laughs> he didn't as much as smile at what I'd said. Maybe because he didn't get it, or maybe because he did. No, he replied in all seriousness, the locker was empty. When did you do this? In November, a couple days before we went to Florida. So, he had more than likely been thinking this. If I die in Florida, if I never come back, no, no, the tefillin must not wind up in the garbage. Then, November 30th, he said we flew to West Palm. I carried my suitcases from the baggage place all the way to the taxi stand. That's how good I felt. And the next morning, my first morning in Florida, I woke up 
And this had happened in my sleep, my face, paralyzed. Yet again, he was pushing the fallen cheek up with his fingertips to see if this time it would stay. I look in the mirror, I see my face, and I knew my life would never be the same. Come here, he said. Come to the bedroom. In the bedroom, where the mahogany bedroom suite no longer gleamed with polish as it had when my mother was in charge of the housekeeping, where instead you could now initial the dust, the dust cutting, coating the upper surfaces. My father showed me in the middle of the top bureau drawer a little metal box where he kept his will, his insurance policy, and his savings books. There was also a record there of his CDs and municipals. All my papers, he said. And here, the key to my safe deposit box. Okay, I said. I did what you told me. He said I made all my savings accounts joint with Sandy. He took out the savings books. There were four of them. To show me where my brother Sandy's name now appeared beneath his as the account owner. Flipping through the savings books, I saw that the savings added up to about $50,000. The CDs and municipals came to another $30,000. They, too, were to be left to my brother. The $10,000 insurance policy goes to you, he said. I know what you told me, but that I had to do. I wasn't going to leave you nothing. Fine, I said. When I was visiting him in Florida some two or three years after my mother's death, the subject of his will had come up, and I had told him to leave all his money to Sandy to split as he wished between his two kids and himself. I told him I didn't need any money, and that Sandy's young son's God could make a big difference to them, the money was divided two ways or three at the most. I meant it when I said it, I confirmed it in a letter to him afterward, and I hadn't thought about his will since. But now, with his death anything but remote, being told by him that he had gone ahead and on the basis of my request substantially eliminated me as one of his heirs, elicited an unforeseen response. I felt repudiated. And the fact that his eliminating me from the will had been my own doing did not at all mitigate this feeling of having been cast out by him. I had made a generous gesture that was also, I suppose, of a piece with the assertions of equality and self-reliance that I'd been making to my father since early adolescence. Admittedly, it was also a characteristic attempt to take the moral high ground within the fact. To define myself in my 50s, as I had in college and graduate school and later as a young writer, as a son to whom material considerations were largely negligible. And I felt crushed for having done it. Naive and foolish and crushed. To my great dismay, standing with him over his last will and testament, I discovered that I wanted my share of the financial surplus that, against all odds, had been accumulated over a lifetime by this obdurate, resolute father of mine. I wanted the money because it was his money and I was his son and I had a right to my share. And I wanted it because it was if not an authentic chunk of his hard-working hide, something like the embodiment of all that he had overcome or outlast. 
It was what he had to give me. It was what he had wanted to give me. It was due me by custom and tradition. And why couldn't I have kept my mouth shut and allowed what was only natural to prevail? Didn't I think I deserved it? Did I consider my brother and his children more deserving inheritors than I, perhaps because my brother, by having given him grandchildren, was more legitimately a father's heir than was the son who had been childless? Was I a younger brother who suddenly had become unable to assert his claim against the seniority of someone who had been there first? Or, to the contrary, was I a younger brother who felt that he had encroached too much upon an older brother's prerogatives already? Just where had this impulse to cast off my right of inheritance come from? And how? How could it have so easily overwhelmed expectations that I now belatedly discovered a son was entitled to have? But this had happened to me more than once in my life. I had refused to allow convention to determine my conduct, only to learn, after I had gone my own way, that my bedrock feelings were sometimes more conventional than my sense of unswerving moral imperative. <clears throat> During the walk we took that afternoon, in which I steered my father very slowly twice around the block, I was not able to tell him, however much I wanted to, and however efficaciously humbling a confession of error might have been, that I would like him to reassign to me the share of his estate that he had originally bequeathed to me at his will. Let it be, I thought, it's almost worth it, though, to be able to savor, yet again, the comedy of your own automatic brand of elevated stupidity. But if it was too late, or for me just too difficult, to lay claim to my original share of the money, I knew what it was I wanted in its place. But I then discovered myself unable to ask for that, not directly, anyhow self-reliant to the last, independent to the end, the son perpetually protesting his autonomy. I don't need it. Tell me about Grandpa's shaving mug, I said. I was looking at it in your bathroom. Where was his barbershop, do you remember? I had spotted the shaving mug that had once been my grandfather's in my father's bathroom the previous morning when I'd come over to tell him about the tumor. In it, my father kept his razor and a tube of shaving cream. The mug was pale blue porcelain. A delicate floral design enclosed a wide white panel at the front, and inside the panel, the name S. Roth and the date 1912 were inscribed in faded gold Gothic lettering. The mug was our one family heirloom, as far as I knew. Aside from a handful of antique snapshots, the only thing tangible that anyone had cared to save from the immigrant years in Newark. I had been intrigued by it ever since my grandfather had died a month short of my seventh birthday, and it made its way into our Newark bathroom, back when my father was still shaving with a bristle brush and shaving soap. Sender Roth, my grandfather, had been a remote, mysterious presence to me as a small boy, 
An elongated man with an undersized head, forebear whom my own skeleton most resembles, and about whom all I knew was that he smoked all day long, spoke only Yiddish, and wasn't much given to fondling the American grandchildren when we all showed up with our parents on Sundays. After his death, the shaving mug in our bathroom brought him much more fully to life for me, not as a grandfather, but even more interestingly then, as an ordinary man among men, a customer of a barber shop, where his mug was kept on a shelf with the mugs of the other neighborhood immigrants. It reassured me as a child to think that in that household where, according to all reports, there was never a penny to spare, a dime was set aside every week for him to go to the barber shop and get his Sabbath shave. The shaving mug inscribed S. Roth had seemed to free my grandfather, if only momentarily, if only for those few minutes he quietly sat being shaved in the barber's chair late on a Friday afternoon. From the doer exigencies that had trapped him and that, I imagined, accounted for his austere, uncommunicative nature. His mug emitted the aura of an archaeological find, an artifact signaling an unexpected level of cultural refinement, an astonishing superfluity in an otherwise cramped and obstructed existence. In our ordinary little Newark bathroom, it had the impact on me of a Greek vase depicting the mythic origins of the race. Tell me about Grandpa's shaving mug, I said, as we walked together slowly down the street. His barbershop. Do you remember it? Of course I remember. Bank Street. Below Wallace Place, where the German hospital used to be, on the corner of Wallace Place and Bank Street. There was a barber on Bank Street. When I was a little boy, we used to go around and get my hair cut, and my father would get a shave. The mug had S. Roth and a, what do you call it on it? A date. And they kept it for him in this barbershop. How'd you come to get it? How did I get it? That's a good question. I don't think I did. No, I didn't. I took it from my brother Ed. <laughs> yes, when we moved from Rutgers Street, Pop took it with him to Hunterdon Street and went to the barber on Johnson Avenue and Avon Avenue. And then Ed took it after Pop died, and I took it from him. I think it was the only thing that was ever left to me. And it wasn't even left to me. I took it. <laughs> you wanted it, I said. I wanted it, he told me with a laugh, since I was a little boy. Want to know something, I said? I did, too. I used to go get a shave with Bill Eisenstadt. He should rest in peace. Remember Bill? Of course, Bill, Lil, and their son, Howie. Barbara on Clinton Place, right around the corner from the high school. Cost a quarter. We leave it to Bill to find the last quarter shave in Newark. From Bill Eisenstadt, he went on to invoke Abe Block, Max Feld, and Sam Kay, and J.M. Cohen, the totemic male figures out of my earliest childhood, insurance men with him at the Metropole, pinochle players in our kitchen on Friday nights, companions with their wives and kids on the Memorial Day picnics up at the South Mountain Reservation, the veteran foot soldiers with whom he had gone out collecting door-to-door -door in Newark's most impoverished neighborhoods. There would be families, he now told me, still paying premiums 20, 30 years after the death of the insured 
Three cents a week, that's what we collected from. How come they kept pay? They never said anything to the agent. Somebody died and they never mentioned it. The insurance man came around and they paid him. Amazing, I said. Though it was by no means the first time that I was hearing his stories of the long evenings collecting pennies from Newark's poor. Stories from 38 years with the Metropolitan. Bill, Max, Abe, Sam, J.M. Cohen. All of them, as he reminded me several times, long gone. And of the few friends alive, there wasn't much good news to report either. Louis Chesler's in a hospital pissing blood. Ida Singer is almost blind. Milton Singer can't walk, he's in a wheelchair. Turo, remember Dick Turo? He has cancer, poor guy. Bill Weber doesn't even know who I am when I call up. Herman? Herman who? I don't know any Herman. Thus he managed not to dwell entirely on his tumor, speaking instead of the old dead and the dying, and those of his friends who would have been better off. The next day, I drove to Elizabeth to pick my father and Lil up and take them over to University Hospital in Newark. He was to consult there about an operation with Dr. Myerson, who was reputed to be among the best brain surgeons in Jersey. Myerson, a plain, plumpish fellow in his early 40s, was gentle and extremely amiable right off the bat. When he had settled in behind his desk, he looked across to where I was sitting and asked what questions I had. I pointed to my father looking awfully glum in a chair between Lil, whom the doctor had called Mrs. Roth, and Myerson's chief nurse, who we were told customarily sat in on preoperative consultations. My father has the questions, I said. Go ahead, Dad. Ask Dr. Myerson everything you want to know. All those questions about the operation that he'd been asking me during the last several days, I had told him to write down and bring with him to the consultation. He'd written them in pencil, laboriously laid them out in that artlessly sprawling yokel handwriting, capitalizing most of the nouns, but spelling all except one or two words correctly. He'd showed me the list before we left the house, and I had thought, I want this list. The list and the shaving mug will do it. My father removed the piece of lined paper from his pocket and unfolded it on his lap. One, he began. What's the procedure? He looked up at Mars. Pardon my ignorance, doctor. Myerson reached behind him, and from a shelf with half a dozen medical texts carelessly flopped over at one end, took down a small painted plastic model of the brain and the skull. Turning it in his hand and pointing with a pencil, he explained where the tumor was situated and where it was pressing into the brain. He showed us on the back wall of the skull where he could cut through to go in to remove it. We'll just lift the brain a little here and take out what's growing underneath it, he said. The thought of his lifting my father's brain staggered me. I hadn't believed you could do such a thing to a brain without inviting disaster. And for all I knew, you couldn't. What do you use to go in there, my father asked. General Electric or Black and Decker? (laughs) 
he had been looking so ancient and so vanquished that I was surprised by his mordancy and the objective courage it seemed to attest to. The doctor's reply demonstrated his own quiet objectivity. Surgical companies make the tools, he said. My father returned to the next prepared question. Two, will it grow back? Eventually it might, Morrison said. And now it was he who was mildly, mordantly ironic. Maybe in 10 or 15 years we'll have to do it again. My father registered the point wryly with a single slow nod. Three, he said, returning to his list, how much pain is there? No, there isn't much pain, Morrison told him. You'll be pretty sick afterward. You'll have a high fever. You'll be very weak. Myerson's nurse, a slight, peppy, middle-aged woman wearing ordinary street clothes, no less pleasant and genial a person than the doctor, put her hand sympathetically on my father's and said, we'll try to get you up and sitting five or six days later. In response, my father simply mumbled, oh boy. Five or six days, unable to lift himself off the bed, gave him the picture if he hadn't got it already. He didn't give out, however, but proceeded to his fourth question. How long does the operation take? Anywhere, Myerson replied, from eight to 10 hours. He managed to take that in without flinching, which was better than I did. Eight to 10 hours, then five to six days. And what would he be worth after that? After the impoverished childhood and the limited education, after the failure of the shoe store and of the frozen food business, after the struggle to gain a managerial role in the teeth of the Metropolitan's Jewish quotas, after the premature deaths of so many loved ones, after all that he had weathered and survived without bitterness or brokenness or despair, wasn't eight to 10 hours of brain surgery really asking too much? Isn't there a limit? The answer is yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes, to the thousandth degree. This was asking too much. To isn't there a limit? The answer is no. Most of the operating time, Morris explained, is spent getting in through the skull. It depends then on the kind of tumor I find. In that area, 95%, 98% are benign. There isn't much bleeding generally. If there is, because of the nature of the tumor, that can slow things up a little. But on he went, the stoical father whom I had never admired more in his life. Five, will I have to learn to walk again after? Yes, Morrison said. And just when I had thought that I had the picture I realized that not by any means had I grasped as yet the awfulness of this thing. Yes, Myerson said, you probably will. There were another five questions written down on the piece of paper, but even my father had heard enough. Pushing the list back into his pocket, he looked directly at Myerson and said, I've got a problem. You do.
Morrison agreed. We drove back through Newark in silence. He had nothing more to ask. There was only that final exchange in Myerson's office for all of us to think about and think about. I've got a problem. At the apartment, Lil went into the kitchenette to prepare some Campbell's soup for lunch. My father went in after her to get the dishes to set the dining room table, and I sat in the living room trying to envision how Myerson was going to lift my father's brain without damaging it. There must be ways, I thought. Lil was apparently using the manual opener screw to the wall beside the sink because I heard my father telling her, hold the can from the bottom. You're not holding it from the bottom. I know how to open a can of soup, she said. But you're not holding it right. Herman, let me be. I am holding it right. Why can't you just do what I ask you when I ask you? It isn't right. Hold it from the bottom. And from the other room, I had all I could do not to shout, you're on the brink of a catastrophe, you idiot. Let her open the can any way she wants to. Though I was also telling myself, of course, how to open a soup can. What else is there to think about? What else is there that matters? This is what's kept him going for 86 years, and what, if anything, is going to get him through now. Hold it from the bottom, Lily knows what he's saying. Admittedly, he went overboard about how she was heating up or failing to heat up the soup. <laughs> After setting our three places at the table, he returned to the kitchenette and stood next to her over the saucepan. She kept insisting the soup wasn't hot yet, and he kept insisting it had to be. It didn't take all day to heat up a can of vegetable soup. This exchange was repeated four times until his patience, if that is the word, ran out, and he pulled the pot off the burner, and leaving Lil empty-handed at the stove, came into the dining room and poured the soup into the bowls and onto the placemats and over the table. Maybe because of his bad eyes, he didn't see the extent of the mess he'd made. The soup was cold. Nobody said so. He probably didn't even notice. Halfway through the silent meal, he said, matter-of-factly, this is the last chapter, but kept spooning soup into his lopsided mouth until his bowl was empty and his shirt looked as though he had been painting with the soup. As I was leaving to go back to New York, he went into the bedroom and returned with a small package for me. A couple of brown paper bags had been savagely twisted about to accommodate the contents, and then bound together with varying lengths of scotch tape, most of which were coiled up on themselves like strands of DNA. I spotted the wrapping as his handiwork, and I recognized the penmanship as well. With a magic marker he had written in uneven block letters, he crossed the top fold of the wrapping from a father to his son. Here, he said, take this home. Downstairs in the car, I tore off all the wrappings and found my grandfather's shaving.
since you like that, I'll read you some. I just wait for the fairy people to leave, and then I'll... I hope it's only the fairy people who are there. A lot of people sneak out at the same time. Okay, I'd like to read to you a few words I've written about how this book was written. It may anticipate an answer, I hope, some of your questions. Among those readers who tell me that they have been affected strongly by the unpretty details of my father's dying and death, some conclude that because Patrimony was a difficult book for them to read, it could not have been an easy book for me to write. But the writing of no book has ever come more easily without all the usual wavering of purpose and groping for means. Even now, I'm surprised to remember how little resemblance there was between the unequivocal way this book was written and the problematic, addled way other books of mine have been. I wrote this book, I'm amazed to say, the way Chekhov is said to have written his stories, the way a bird sings. And yet no experience to which I've ever looked for inspiration was anything like so dreadful to me as this one. Far from feeling unprepared and lost, dopily stumbling like the village idiot novelist down the rocky road to nonsense once again, I understood that what I had conventionally taken to be the vocation itself had in fact been a prolonged apprenticeship of some thirty-odd years. It occurred to me that perhaps since my very first published story appeared in the Chicago Review in 1954, I had been training for just this job, drilling at the typewriter on a dozen different kinds of books so that when commencement finally came for me, I could face the real task for which I had so long been schooled as complete a writer as it was in my power to be. Of course, what I discovered was that this fanatical preparation had readied me for everything except the unmistakable impact that marks reality as reality and makes every mental simulation of it as good as hallucinatory by comparison. However closely I may have adhered to the bone of my experience in some of my work, I had never before permitted myself to write this nakedly about so singularly private an upheaval. I had never before written about events as they were unfolding. Never had the narrative's course and its complications been dictated to me rather than by me. A beginning, a middle, an ending. No such progression could be sharply discerned, largely because an ending was what I was doing everything to forestall. I found myself not only writing a book drawn solely from reality, which is rooted in a rather different premise from the imagination, but writing a book that I hope never to finish. People ask writers, do you know the ending when you begin? Here the answer, unfortunately, was yes. The anxiety regularly touched off in the final stages of composition by my fear of being unable to imagine a book's necessary conclusion was co-pilot from the start. Anxiety aroused overwhelmingly at the very outset by the knowledge of what this conclusion simply had to be. I began writing because there was pitifully little else I could do. However feverishly I scurried about trying to make unhappen to my father what had never in his life happened to him before what had no business happening to him, 
what was not going to happen to him if I had any say in the matter. He was dying. The father to whom I had remained inextricably a son for nearly 60 years, despite all the seemingly incompatible differences, the superabundant dissimilarities of personal experience, of outlook, of everything. The lodestar father to that fixated son was dying, and that was why I was writing. I was writing because he was dying, and I had no say in the matter at all. I was writing not because the, it was the only effectual thing I could think to do, but because I knew I could do nothing to alter anything. It was out of this powerlessness that I began to write. The writing did not make me less powerless. It made me utterly powerless. More powerless even than I might have felt had I not been saddled with the predilection to seek in words for some hint of the way things really are. To locate in language that sonorous force that hammers into one's deficient, stupid, truth-denying brain at least a little unillusioned sample of what life is. I say that steadily writing everything down like a stream of dispatches pouring in from the front couldn't have been easier for me. That doesn't mean it made it better for me. Writing so decisively made it worse. This incomprehensible thing that couldn't possibly be happening, this far-fetched fairy tale entitled Father Dies, had to be happening if words that were accurate could be found to describe it. Through writing, I imposed upon myself belief. Belief in reality's most awful surprise of them all. And against the massive counterforce of all the usual fears, I gave my father's death its due. This is not a collection, you don't have to leave, it's just the questions that are being um, The question here is, is, what, if any, observations do you have now standing alone, parentless? Having lost both parents. Um, that's, that's, um, oh, I don't have uh, anything to say about that situation that we don't all know, I think. Um, uh, whatever I could say, we've all said. Um, and uh, I suppose the, uh, the strongest part of it, for one who's parentless at, at, at 57 or whatever I was when my father died, um, it means different things from what it obviously must mean to be parentless at, at 10 or 20 or 30. Uh, the big difference would be that the time remaining to oneself is not very long. And um, that fact, I think, is brought in very powerfully by the loss of parents, fortunately, very late in life. Um, have you written about your mother's death? Why, why not? I don't believe that in uh, 
in fact, I know that in, in my nonfiction book, I have not written about my mother's death. Why, why not? I, partially, I wasn't present when my mother died. I was in, in, in London. Thanks. And she died suddenly and totally unexpectedly, though she was a woman of 77, no one had expected her to die. Um, and I suppose um, it isn't so much that I wrote about the death of the parent in this book, but I wrote about the um, um, experience of uh, helping him as best I could through the year or 14 months or 16 months, whatever it was, between the diagnosis and the death. Um, so that is really the, the, uh, the bulk of uh, patrimony is about that long experience of, of his uh, preparing to die, of my preparing myself for his death, and of his living for those 14 months. So the book is also about his living through those months. <laughs> um, how do you get yourself to write on a bad day? With effort. Um, Wow. <laughs> is this all? Is this all? <laughs> sure. Uh, how do you with with effort? Um, uh, I try to. Um, how does anybody get themselves to work on a bad day? Uh, with effort. Um, you have to turn up, and um, whether you're going to an office, your own, or someone else's, or to some work site or whatever, uh, you have bad days and you don't feel like working, you don't think you can do it, you have to do it. Um, if I don't turn up, no one else will. Um, the next question is, how important are literary friendships? Do you have relationship with other, relationships with other writers which help you as a writer? Um, well, I have friends who are, who are writers, and I have uh, a good number of friends who are not writers, but who are essentially literary people um, and are somehow connected to books, either they're teachers or they're editors. Um, by and large, I think that they fall into those categories. And in some cases, there are other writers. Um, I don't know that my closest friends are, in fact, other writers, though I have friendships with other writers, and I, I value them, and, and they're people I, I tend to admire. Um, so it's important that I know them, I think. Uh, but writers have strange friendships, not because, as advertised or as misunderstood, they're Oh, they're rivalrous in a, in a nasty or um, egomaniacal way. Uh, I'm sure you could find such people who could give you a hard time, but um, my experience is that my, the writers who I consider my friends are extremely generous and, tact, and tactful. Um, and it could, as good natured as it's humanly possible to be about, some, about somebody else's success, uh, we're only you know, fallen angels, and it's not, it's not easy. And as um, generous as they can be when things are going uh, badly. Um, I hope that's a kind of answer to that question. <laughs> I can't answer this one, but it's an interesting question. 
Um, many of your male characters are confident, libidinous, and guilty. Where does that type come from? Well, we're in the right building to ask, I think. Um, what book did you learn the most from writing? What did you learn? Has your view of the world changed as a result of what you have created? What book did I learn most from writing? What did you learn? I'm not being clever when I say I learned to write that book. That's what I learned. Um, for all that's for all the good that does you. Because you can't write that book again. So you've really learned, over a period of two or two and a half years, you've learned something utterly useless. Um, but as somebody said, and I forget who it is, works of art are utterly useless and terribly important. Um, sex again. What's wrong with you people? No wonder a lot of people left. They didn't want to stay here with the rest of you. Um, some writers find it difficult to write about sex. Is sex easy for you to write about? Um, I don't know. Uh, is sex easy for me to write about? Well, you're certainly conscious um, when you're writing about sex, when you're describing um, some kind of sexual encounter or, or edging up on one. or uh, I think you're conscious of, um, you ask, well, how am I going to do this? Rather the way you perform the act itself. Um, uh, <laughs> how will this be accomplished? Um, because there, because there are so many bad conventions and cliches um, and so many obvious ways to write about sex. And there are so many ways that are resonant of sub-art, um, of um, pornography, uh, of the dirty joke, of um, sadism, whatever. Um, and uh, so I, I think one is conscious that there's a, um, there's a danger sign there. The danger sign isn't that you're writing about sex and this is a naughty thing to be doing. Uh, the danger has to do with falling into the conventions or the cliches or working too hard not to be conventional, too, can also be a, a problem because you can uh, make a different kind of fool of yourself. So, difficult, easy, I don't know if those are quite the words I would um, use to describe the struggle. Um, I guess the goal is to be, um, as it always is, uh, as spontaneous as you can be, while at the same time being as detached as you can be. You shouldn't make yourself overly excited. What standards do you apply for distinguishing between what is funny and worth writing about versus something too vulgar to write about? 
Well, it's a strange opposition between what is funny and what is vulgar. I was, I was expecting uh, the opposite of funny to be serious. Um, what standards do you apply for distinguishing between what is funny and worth writing about versus something vulgar to write about? Well, it, 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 it's, let's stick to the funny part, part because it isn't that something is too vulgar to write about, it's that you write about it vulgarly is the problem. Nothing is too vulgar to write about. Um, so, what is funny? Well, uh, let's use the, 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 the case of hand, the, the thing I just, piece I just read to you uh, earlier. Um, for some reasons, funny things happened in the midst of this awful thing. Um, now, I wasn't trying to write a funny book, mind you. Um, nor was I trying to make people cry. I was trying to be accurate uh, to the experience. And um, I think some of the comedy arises out of the, uh, my father's character. Uh, he was a, a man who could himself be mordantly comical in a kind of um, matter-of-fact and uh, uh, very uh, uh, earthy way. And then sometimes the predicament was itself um, a comic. Now, I, 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 the illness he had was not painful. It, it, wa it, it turned out that it was more painful than I knew, but he kept this uh, from us. Uh, but nonetheless, he, it was not the pain that we associate with some of the very terrible, terrible d d deaths from cancer that we all know about, um, where the pain is, 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 is excruciating and, and horrible. I think had that been what I was writing about, I don't think there would have been um, a funny, uh, to pick up the word from the question, a funny side to the experience. Um, there might have been, I don't know. I mean, we luckily didn't have to live through that, and he didn't have to live through it. Uh, but that might have changed the um, uh, the way the book, um, the emotional tone of the book. I, I, I think you get my point. Uh, so I think I've covered both halves. There's nothing too vulgar to write about, though you can write about it vulgarly. And I don't even don't even know if that's so awful. Um, I'm told I've never read Rabelais, but I'm told he writes about vulgar things vulgarly. What's wrong? I mean, maybe that's okay too. Um, what do you think distinguishes your work? What are your unique are your unique talents as a writer? Well, I think somebody's going to have to come up from the audience and answer that when I'm finished. Have you written any stories or books you now regret writing? If you could go back and change anything, would you? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I have to tell you, it, it's a good question. This doesn't contradict what I just said about it being a good question. I've never thought about it, so that tells you something about um, whether I do have any regrets. Um, I don't have any regrets because I, I think, along with most any writer worth his or her salt, I worked as hard as I could on, on any book. Um, and. Uh, I took it down to the end. Um, I took it as far as I could go with it. Um, um, 
I'm capable of hard work and I work hard. And so therefore there's no regret that would make any sense because I can only do as well as I can do. Um, one of your recurring themes is the relationship between art and life. How has art affected your life? Well, literature has, has, has shaped my entire life. Um, I have no idea what a life without it would have been. Um, it's integral to my life. Um, it's, a, it's, 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 the, it's the heart of my life. Um, so the answer is that art has affected it totally. Not the other arts, by the way. Uh, not that I don't have some enjoyment from uh, the other arts, but um, I could go on living without them. But I, I couldn't go on um, being myself in this life without uh, literature. This question is very, very long, so I'm not going to read it. I'll read this aloud. If I, I may get to the end and not answer it, I don't know. Not because it would be a bad question, it's just so long. Uh, on patrimony, writers are always taking notes, but isn't there an, an act of remembering without letting the unconscious have its way by forgetting? With an event as painful as, your, as painful as your father's dying, and his specifically not wanting you to tell his secret of beshitting himself, how come you were able to overcome such pressure? Well, okay, that's a good question. Uh, let me try to rephrase it and, uh, and inform those of you who haven't read this book about one incident, which is very important, which the writer of this question refers to. Um, at one point in the book, my father had had a buy-up. I, re I, I recount this incident. My father had had a biopsy of the tumor, which is a very um, un unpleasant, as the doctors say, uh, unpleasant procedure. After three or four days in the hospital, uh, or two or three days, I think, I forget, it was not very much time, he came to stay with uh, my wife and I, uh, stay with me and my wife in the country. And um, when he was, because of the procedure and because of the hospital stay and so on, uh, he was extremely irregular. Uh, and at one point, um, he beshat himself, to use the word he used to describe it. Uh, it's not the word I use in the book. The word I use in the book, um, I, I repeat for you, which is shit. Um, and um, I describe going in and finding this terrific mess, which he tried to hide and he tried to take a shower. It was a uh, ghastly for him because he was deeply, deeply humiliated and embarrassed. And um, I put him to bed and I went back into the bathroom and I cleaned it up, and, um, which is what one does. And um, however, when I was in the bedroom with him and calming him down and putting him to sleep, he said, don't tell anybody about this. And I said, I wouldn't. So what the writer is referring to the fact that not only I didn't keep my promise to him, um, and um, Rather politely, this writer says, how were you able to overcome such pressure? Uh, but I think he, he or she may mean, how come I broke my promise? And I'll tell you why I broke my promise. Uh, because he's dead. Um, and uh, if he were living, I would have been very reluctant 
um, to publish uh, the book with that scene in it. I wouldn't have published the book at all had he been living. It was far too intimate for me to uh, publish while he was alive, but I knew he was not going to outlive this tumor. Um, why I included this scene in the, in the book um, is because it seemed to me the heart of the book, strange to say. But anybody who has nursed an extremely ill or dying person knows that these uh, events like that um, produce a, a kind of intimacy with another adult um, that's pretty extreme and extraordinary. Um, and especially a relationship between a parent and a child. Uh, though I'm a grown man, I'm, I was still his child. And um, the, the subject of this book is intimacy. Um, the subject of this book is old age and its humiliations uh, and uh, the loss of strength, the loss of power, and then the loss of life. Um, so this seemed to me absolutely crucial to the story I had to tell about what we went through, what he went through, and what we went through together. And to be sure, in the book, it's the patrimony. Um, I say that that was my patrimony. That's what he gave me, the opportunity to clean his shit. Um, I'm, I, I don't mean to speak blasphemously um, in your presence, uh, but uh, th that's the only word I can think of to describe what the experience felt like. And it's what made the experience, the, the word, is what made the experience all the more moving um, for me. So that's a long answer to this question. I'm going to answer one or two more, and then I'm going to go home, okay? Um, do you plan to write more fiction? Um, uh, yes. Um, have you heard otherwise? <laughs> Did John Dunn say I wasn't planning to write more fiction? I wouldn't put it past him, actually. Uh, have you recorded your reading of Patrimony? No. Um, what similarities, let's make this the last question. What similarities or differences do you see between your Zuckerman and Updike's rabbit? Well, I see mostly uh, uh, differences. Um, <laughs> and I think John would say the same if asked the same question. Um, somebody, in fact, wrote a, a book um, about comparing uh, his uh, fiction and mine, and he finds that this fellow finds similarities, but I think they're, uh, with all due respect to this uh, writer, I think they're, they tend to be superficial and, and shallow um, similarities. I think that uh, if we think of the worlds that both these men come out of, my, the Zuckerman in my um, uh, book called, uh, trilogy called Zuckerman Bound and Rabbit and, and, and John Updike's trilogy, they come out of entirely different worlds. Um, they have uh, occupations which are radically different, lead them into radically different kinds of lives and thoughts and dilemmas. Um, their relationship to women and children is entirely different. And um, then the way that they're, that I think most importantly, the, 
the means by which they're presented are radically different. That is, we're such radically different writers, and you prefer one or you prefer the other. Um, but uh, the fact remains we're very, very different writers, and so that, in a way, determines everything, that the experience of the book is so very different that um, this essentially makes the characters uh, very different. It's like two people out of fundamentally different societies who are born and grow up and marry and have children and die, but the difference between the man in Burma and uh, the man in um, uh, South Africa is very different. So I'll take the rest of these questions home and I'll hand the answers in tomorrow morning. That was Philip Roth at Seattle Arts and Lectures in 2006. This was Sal on Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal on Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season featuring talks by Catherine Boo, Zadie Smith, Valeria Luiselli, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been another edition of Sal on Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures.